And now, broadcasting live on Star Worldwide Networks, it's time for Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery with Dr. William Nelson. If you suffer from addiction to opiate pain relievers, heroin, alcohol, or other substances, we're here to give you hope and help you overcome your addiction. Now, here's your host, Dr. Nelson. Sometimes um, people get sidetracked, and people that have um, a good upbringing and good parents, parents that care, parents that are there for them, and they have uh, talents, uh, either athletic or academic, um, even despite all those positive things in their life, we sometimes find that they get lost in the through in the throes of addiction. And um, not all of them make it out and find sobriety. Um, a few years ago, there was a Sports Illustrated article that estimated that 10% of the high school varsity athletes are taking prescription opioid drugs that were not prescribed to them. So on your football team of 70, I mean, seven guys out there are using their grandmas or somebody's opiates or buying them on the street. I, it's probably changed. It's probably switched to fentanyl now because it's a lot more difficult to get opiates. Um, but nonetheless, those that do uh, succumb to using those opioids, um, about 20% of them become addicted. And so uh, my guest today is one of those talented um, athletes um, from a uh, stable family, parents that cared, and um, set a good example. And in, in spite of that, um, Nick Morales found himself um, addicted to opioids. And after dealing with that challenge, then he turned to alcohol. And um, he's here today to share with us his personal journey. Um, he he was able to find sobriety um, um, in an untraditional fashion, so he didn't do uh, rehab, but he found skills um, that he was able to develop and nurture that not only allowed him to become sober, but also um, earn a bachelor degree from college without um, having to pay tuition. So he got a free education, and then he also uh, wrote a best-selling book. So what? Uh, Nick Morales was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was an athlete, opiate user, and overdrank alcohol. Now an author, graduate, and business owner. He had some challenging childhood experiences that he repressed and led to uh, exploration of substances and got him into uh, opiate disorder. Um, he found himself, when he was in dire straits, he was living in a... a a building that didn't have utilities. So, um, but he was able to find sobriety and now he's sharing his story and he's encouraging others. He wrote a book called Five Things You Know Before You Get Sober. So with that, my name is Dr. William Nelson. You're listening to Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery. Welcome everyone. And with that, I'd like to welcome Nick Morales. Uh, Nick, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Nelson. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I, I'm excited to hear your story and and just what you have to share with our listeners. You know, and, and I oftentimes, um, I don't know exactly all the listeners, but I can imagine just so you know your audience, I imagine most of them are parents 
or loved ones of addicted love um they have addicted loved ones because oftentimes the people in the throes of their addiction they may or may not um find these podcasts and they're they're so struggling with their day-to-day living that they're probably not um listening um however those that are in recovery and have made a decision those are also i'd say so it's probably 50-50 it's those parents and um loved ones that are listening for giving hints of how to help their child or their spouse or their friend and then also people that have now sober but are trying to continue their um, journey so just to give you an idea so tell me um tell me um just give me give us a little bit of your details um i i understand you're an athlete uh i think a wrestler and raised in albuquerque and i think your mom was a philanthropist and worked in um and your father was a, a technician in high tech i think yeah yes sir I uh, grew up with two wonderful parents that uh, did their very best for me. And, you know, just even speaking to that portion of the audience right there, uh, I know that for my family, something that has been expressed is, well, what could we have done differently? And the reality is there's really not too much that could have been done differently because it was a new experience for everybody. Uh, and that's not something, my experience wasn't something that they uh, envisioned when I was growing up. I'm sure that when they were looking over the crib when I was a baby that they'd never uh, imagined their son being a, a, an opiate addict, um, an individual yeah. who overdrank. Um, so that was one of the questions that they used to ask me was, uh, what what could we have done better? And uh, for me, it was, you guys did your very best um, because they're human too. Um, but yeah. yeah, my mom, uh, she's a great woman. Uh, my dad was a great man that uh, did what they needed to do. Uh, they stayed together until I was 20, and then they divorced. Um, but up until 20, I had a two-parent household, uh, middle class. We weren't uh, below the means. You know, there was a couple times where we had food, but it wasn't what we ideally wanted. Uh, yeah, just like that, and uh, it was great. I remember going on vacation. Remember going on family trips, family reunions. Um, so I had a very solid upbringing as what I would call it um, above average for sure uh, compared to some of the colleagues or people that were in my school and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, they they introduced me to a lot of different cultures. They introduced me to religion. They introduced me to different experiences and environments that was, uh, that was very helpful for me at least uh, to know that there's other things out in the world um, because I think sometimes we get fixated in this little box of our own world and uh, that can be that can be difficult. But like you said, I wrestled from age seven to seventeen. I earned a full ride wrestling scholarship when I was seventeen years old um, to go to Northern Colorado University. Uh, but just because of my own ego and uh, anger problems, I ended up quitting wrestling when I was uh, eighteen years old and um, decided to join the workforce as well as participate in illegal behaviors to earn money. Um, so that's kind of where my path diverted. Um, yeah, I, I never heard of that. You said that you were selling prime times. So it sounds like you're the you're selling uh, images of the Colorado football coach. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, so, never heard of it. So those are single cigarettes. So you guys call them prime times. That's funny. Yeah, they're uh, like mini cigars is what they are. 
Um, okay. The, the prime and then time. you then you also sold weed, and then you started turning to selling oxys or um, that that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, prescription pills uh, started to enter the market, and people enjoyed them. So you know, where there's a demand, you provide the supply. Now yeah. Again. Yeah. You know, um, as a corollary to that question, um, you know, your parents are like, what could we have done differently? Um, the fact that they were there for you and supportive in in ways, what are the things that they did that allowed you and um, were, was able to support you in a way that was conducive to your recovery and your sobriety? One of the things that they did that was conducive to my recovery and my sobriety was uh, not take control. I know it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but they let the they let the river flow the way that the river needed to flow, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's hard, didn't. hard to do as a parent. Wow. I can only imagine uh, to just Take be an guts. observer. Yeah. yeah. Um, just to watch your son kind of make these poor decisions and know the outcomes of them and not being, not jumping in to play the savior um, because that when they stopped participating in that kind of, let me save them, let me save them. That's when life became very real. Um, yeah. There was instances where I had to deal with the police, where I was in jams just because of decisions that I had made and individuals I was uh, hanging out with. And their response to, no, we can't help you out uh, with money. No, you can't stay here at the house. Um, no, you can't, uh, we can't bail you out, basically. Uh, yeah. One of the most conducive things to my recovery because it made me realize that my decisions were my decisions and the consequences that came with each one of those decisions was uh, all reflected back on me. Yeah. Well, you know, um, what did, when that occurred, um, what was your response when you were, you were obviously asking for help, you needed help and they were not, well, they probably were able, but unwilling to help. Do you remember what your response was or how you felt or what what you uh, thought about their um, not willing to help you? Yeah, the broad description was abandonment. Yeah. That was the, the biggest feeling that I had was my family abandoned me. And that created a reaction of, well, if your family is abandoning you, then what does it matter? You know, that woe is me kind of victim mindset of, oh, I'm just going to go hurt myself even more because it's going to hurt them. Yeah. Uh, that was my that was my actual reaction to the uh, emotion of abandonment that I had felt. Yeah. You know, the, the reason I asked is um, our daughter um, is now nine years sober, and uh, we did a lot of the same things that your parents did. We, uh, we wouldn't let her sleep in the house. We stopped giving her money for anything you know not for a while we we're giving her gas money to put in her car and then we're like wait a minute she she needs gas to get around so any money that we give her for gas is going to be money that's extra to be able to use for drugs so we just refuse to give her money for anything and um we, we even uh would not buy her groceries because she would sell them mm-hmm. you know or do anything and everything for money and then um 
but the one thing that we did do, and she told us later that was really helpful. So any of you parents out there listening, um, here's a couple bits of advice. Um, one is you're, if you're providing your child with financial resources to allow them to continue their behavior, that's not helping at all, no matter what, unless it's for recovery or unless you're helping them with some sort of a, a medical recovery. And then sometimes you got to wonder about that as well. But that's where we would help. Um, and then even though we were not giving financial support or providing any of that, what we did is whenever she was willing to talk, we were willing to listen. And that's the part that's so difficult because a lot of people just cut off communications altogether, parents. In, in some cases, that's probably good. In other cases, with our daughter, she said that was one thing that really kept her going because we told her, we love you, we do anything for you, but not when you're, not when you're doing the behavior that you're doing. We love you and we, we know that you're going to find a way out, and, but we can't help you. And um, one of my... Um, mentors, he he even gave me some advice that I've given to others that I think is, is really even better than that. And that's when you do have conversation that you listen, and instead of trying to rescue immediately, which is what the your um, initial reaction as a parent, you go, oh man, I can help, I can, you know, let's, I'll go in and kind of fix it. But as you mentioned, that isn't helping anything because it's kind of reinforcing your inability to do things for yourself. So um, Mike Speakman, who's uh, started a group called palsgroup.org and he wrote uh, Four Seasons of Recovery, he told me this and I'll never forget and I've given it this advice to a lot of people and that is when your child's in their throes of addiction or maybe not an addiction, maybe just the growing up as an adolescent and they're complaining, they're sharing their information, they're, they're kind of you know, you hear that, wow, they're, they're really sharing their information and being open with you. Um, rather than, well, for one, just listen. And then without trying to jump in and save them and to, to take over, you say, hey, I, I hear you. And wow, that, you know, how does that feel? You know, kind of make sure they understand that you're listening and you care. And then say, so my question to you is, what do you need from me? Do you just want me to know what's going on? You want a, a caring, listening ear so I, I understand what's happening with you? I can I can do that. Um, do you want my advice on what I may be able to offer you um, as an, a piece of advice? Or are you asking for my help so that I may, if I'm able and, you know, it, it makes sense for what's best for you, you know, are you asking for my help? And I think just kind of instead of jumping in and doing that, I think that's a really powerful way to respond. But it's not the natural tendency for parents as you as you kind of alluded to, because we all the good parenting styles that we use for people who aren't in addiction, they thrown out the window when it comes to substance or process abuse. Oh absolutely, Doctor Nelson, absolutely. And that's some great advice because um, there are different moments during uh, the addiction process where, yeah, you're ready to receive help. There's different times where, you know what, no, I'm not ready to receive help. I just need to vent. I need to yeah. get this off my chest, off my mind, off my shoulders, because that's what's going to help me out the most. 
Um, and then there's moments where it is like, you know what? I am seeking that parental advice. Uh, I yeah. do, I do need some help in, in direction right now. And so being yeah. able to have that, uh, restraint on your parental instinct to, to help and to solve, uh, or resolve for a, uh, child of yours and kind of go through those three questions that you laid out is a wonderful uh, tool for any parent that that's dealing with a child in addiction for sure so um a couple questions one is um you you kind of um i don't know exactly what it is maybe you can um, describe it for our listeners um that you did a kind of a non-traditional uh recovery and you did not do rehab so and and then you said you alluded to you know you you had skills you developed or or fell back on that not only allowed you to do that but you know get a bachelor degree and and then start a business and then um write this uh, best selling book um so can you describe your process and what you did yeah i'd love to um i would love to and before i move forward man congratulations on your daughter for being 9 years that's that's amazing oh. Oh, if you if you saw her or knew her, when she eventually uh, she eventually ended up working at the place where she uh, was multiple um, visits with a failed uh, you know detox and recovery. And when she went back in there, somebody you know a few people were like, wait, didn't you come here as a patient like three years ago? And they they said, yeah. They said. Wow, we never thought you were going to get sober. <laughs> so, yeah, and I didn't think I didn't think so either. So, yeah, thank you. It's a miracle and um I thank God every day for it and I usually when I get right now, I'm starting to get choked up after 9 years. I any time we start talking about it, I feel this welling up in my throat and my heart gets full and it's just she's she beat the odds and uh, she was a 100-pound little thin woman and using seven grams of IV heroin a day, more than I've ever heard of any 300 pounder, you know? Yeah. So she was in dire straits. She, um, she overdosed five times. She was in the ER getting Narcan and she, uh, had to get her, um, paddles with her heart to be electro converted where her heart stopped. And, you know, she's a miracle. And now we have a little grandson and she's single mom working, supporting her child responsible and I never imagined her ever getting there and I tell her all the time how proud I am and how proud she must be so thank you so much yeah, it, it awesome. means a lot and we anything anytime we can help anybody to do that we're you know we feel it's our obligation to do so and and so I love to hear what you have to say as well um, because I think for you is uh, is it is it uh, your calling now to help others you feel like you 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 owe it to others to help share if there's any chance that you can help them in any small way or any large way it's, oh, it's like this yeah so i i applaud your in what you're doing and you're reaching out and sharing your story and helping educate and coach and doing all the things that you're doing no thank you for that um i weighed maybe about 20 pounds more than she did uh, at my at my worst, I was 120 wow. pounds. Wow! Wow! IV injection. Um, wow. Well, um, what what weight class did you wrestle? I wrestled 170 pounds. That's naturally. You were 170. 
Yeah, and you okay. went down to 120. 120, yes, sir. Wow. I can't imagine because usually when you're wrestling at 170, you don't have much body fat. No. You're, you're normally weighing about 180, 190, and you're cutting. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 120 pounds is where I found myself in just the real lowest portion of addiction. And uh, coming from you know, just that environment, there's a lot other, there's a lot more that goes on to it, right? So um, not only the uh, adverse childhood experiences that I had, was I working, not even working through that, I was trying to solve with opiates, um, but also the um, experiences that I had in the streets and uh, addiction, you know, those kind of compound on each other. And where I found myself at, Dr. Nelson, where really there was, you know, it was a few steps to hit to the rock bottom. It wasn't just one rock bottom for me. Um, yeah. But one of them was my parents, my mother. Uh, I was uh, staying at her house. She would give me one chance. And she said, you just can't use drugs here. Well, um, she got up to go to work in the morning and she'd come and tell me bye. That evening I had ended up getting high in the house and at the time, I was uh, smoking off a of foil, freebasing it, and I got so high that I fell asleep. Um, well, when I fell asleep, I hadn't used all of my uh, drugs, all my narcotics. And so when she walked into the room the next day to tell me bye, I woke up and I had the foil stuck to my forehead because I passed out. Um, and she looked at me and she gave me a kiss and she said, we need to talk when I get home from work. Um, because this is what I told you you couldn't do, because she knew what it was. Um, yeah. And it was stuck to my forehead, Dr. Nelson, because the opiate. Oh, no. Yeah, it was, I felt like <laughs> a fool. Um, <laughs> and there was no way around that. So when she asked me to leave that evening, um, she said, you can't stay here anymore. I asked you to do something, and, you know, I need to respect this boundary um, that I set for you, because if I don't, then you're just going to use it. You don't seem to respect it. So that was one of the first... Uh, opportunities for me um, to really start reflecting. The second one was my father. Uh, he told me, you know what, uh, you need to kind of get your stuff together or else you can't be around me. Um, and my sister, I got a younger sister that's two years younger than me and we're really close. And she uh, said, I don't want anything to do with you um, while you're using because you're a whole different person. So those three events, uh, brought the attention to Nico, you really have an issue um, and you need to address it. Then I had some very close friends at the time who were great friends. Um, we don't talk anymore. It's been like 10, 12 years. Uh, but they also said, Nico, we can't be around you because you, you're overusing. So you just need to not come around anymore. Um, so those are the emotional portions that drove me to self-reflection. But an actual moment where I was like, what the heck are you doing, um, Dr. Nelson, as I was uh, had an interaction in a deal that didn't go well and saw some things that just weren't the best to see. Uh, the day before, I had watched somebody overdose in front of me, and that evening I was laying in my truck uh, trying to get some rest uh, in the middle of a Walmart parking lot. And I had this knife with me because it wasn't the safest neighborhood, and, uh, and I wanted to protect myself, but I couldn't sleep. I was going through withdrawals and I couldn't sleep. And I was like, what the heck is wrong with you, man? You have this 
home that you can go to, but you need to just remove this one thing from your life. And I'm pretty stubborn, Dr. Nelson. I got a thick head. Um, that's one of the things that a pro and a con uh, for my own personality is that I don't like to be told what to do. So at the time that I had gone to rehab, it just seemed too authoritative uh, for me. And they were, when yeah. they were in the second process, they were trying to dictate some things. And I was just like, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, it's not the way that my brain works. If you ask me to yeah. do something, I'm more than happy to do it. But to tell me, um, for some reason, my mind doesn't like that. So yeah. rehab was out of the question. Um, but as I said earlier, my parents introduced me to religion um, at a young age. So um kind of wandering the streets and uh, I say, well, you know what? If there is a God out there, then help me get clean. Help me get clean and, and let's not go to rehab. Let's not go to jail. If you're really God of the universe, then you should be able to do it. Well, when you have relationship rather than religion, it changes things. And so I started talking to God my creator and I'd ask him for help. And all of a sudden this euphoric feeling would just come over me and the withdrawals would go, go away temporarily. And it seemed like the more that I talked to him, the more that my brain wouldn't be so wound up on substances. It was more wound up on, I need that relief. I need that relief that I can only get when I communicate with him. And that's one of the ways that I started to participate in what I call personal development. Um, my personal development journey is what I call my recovery journey because it took years. I uh, stopped using when I was 22 years old um, at 120 pounds. I was shooting up 60 cc's uh, IV injection every two hours just to stay well um, where I wasn't hurting. And when I talked to God and I said, hey, you know what? I'm done with this. Uh, I was able to not use anymore without any type of uh, medically assisted treatment, no suboxone, uh, no methadone. And it was just like this release uh, was taken off my shoulders. And so when I felt that, I started diving more into this relationship. And as you said earlier, uh, after the opiate addiction, you know, I turned to alcohol, uh, mainly because my family started to welcome me back into the homes um, I was able to see my sister, see my mom, see my dad, and they were happy uh, around me. And their rule was, uh, you know, it, you can keep on coming around as long as you don't do drugs. But because I hadn't dealt with some of the underlying issues, the uh, the legal narcotic is what I turned to. That's when alcohol really uh, did the exact same thing. And I was like, dang, I thought I'd beat this stuff, but Dr. Nelson, I didn't. Um, I had just replaced one with another. And I found myself again uh, in this abandoned building with my parents not wanting to talk to me, my sister not wanting to talk to me, really no friends. But I was able to keep a job um, for some reason. That was one of the things that I was able to do at that time when I was uh, over drinking. And I worked at a call center, so I guess that was kind of a, a pro. I got this gift of gab uh, where I could talk to a lot of people and, you know, if I need to slur my words, it wasn't too noticeable at the call center. Uh, the odor that I had was, and so even at work, they uh, asked me to leave one day. And so why don't you go try to solve some of your issues? And I was like, all right. I say all that because I had shifted from being dependent on a higher power to being dependent on myself again. And that's what I really need to come to realize. 
is that it wasn't me who was getting me through all this stuff. It was this, this creator, this creator of the universe. And for me, um, you know, I believe that it's uh, Jesus and God. Those are my creators. Those are my higher powers. And um, when I was over drinking, I turned back to him. And he's like, are you really done this time? Are you really done? And are you really going to listen to me and follow me and do what I say? And uh, I said, yes. I made the agreement. Yes. Full-heartedly, yes. I seen what you did when I was uh, when I stopped using. I know you can do it again. Uh, you always provide a way. And so we did. Uh, I was able to get my job back, which was an incredible feat of its own because I had passed out at work one day over drinking, um, fell into this fence right in front of all the managers. <laughs> they, they were like, something's wrong with you. And uh, I didn't think I was going to be able to get the job back. But they said, yeah, we'll give you, we'll give you another shot. Uh, and from there, I knew that it was um, not so much a, a last shot, but that I had kind of um, used a lot of my opportunities, a lot of my relationship equity, a lot of my uh, chances were being shortened. Um, and so one of the things that I learned, um, because rehab wasn't helpful, Jail wasn't something that I uh, I just knew not to go because once you got stuck in the system, it was hard to get out of. Um, and I was searching for help. I just didn't know where. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to some music on YouTube, and there's this guy, his name's Dr. Eric Thomas. They call him E.T., the hip-hop preacher. He comes across... How is, it, how is the last name? Eric what? Thomas. Okay, Eric Thomas. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he comes across and he uh, says his, his catchphrase and he starts thanking God that it's Monday. And I was like, who the heck is this guy that's happy about a Monday? <laughs> and, and I started listening to him. And one of the pathways that I took from him um, was, you know what, the way that you perceive everything really is on you. The circumstances might be difficult. The environments might be difficult. The uh, situations might be difficult. But how you think about it is completely on you. And that was pivotal for me, Dr. Nelson, was uh, understanding that not every thought that came into my head was a identity thought. Not every thought that came into my head was a thought that I needed to take action on. Not every thought that came into my head was something that needed to be... Um, well done. And I had the opportunity and the power to change the way that I think. And so that's where I started. Uh, and I started to talk to God and I was like, Lord, help me to change the way that I can think in my brain. Um, because my brain seems to be the, the main problem. This thing between my ears that you've given me seems to be the biggest issue. Not so much everything else around me. I can deal with that. But what goes on in my head hurts. And it hurts so much that the only release that I know how to do is knock myself out with some sort of substance. And slowly but surely, I was able to manage my thoughts little by little. And what I did is I replaced the thought of substance use with another thought of something positive. Uh, some individuals call it a positive mental attitude, which is great, but you have to have some sort of phrase um, that you would use. And 
for me, anytime that I thought about drinking, anytime that I thought about using, anytime that I thought about getting high was, all right, let me change the way that I think because I want to know what your purpose is for me, which will please you and make you happy. This is my conversation that I'm having internally with God. And just by saying that, let me change the way that I'm thinking. I started to change the way that I thought. So when somebody would uh, make me upset or when things weren't going my way, um, my normal control issues would pop up. That's when uh, I would say these, you know, these proverbs, these phrases that I was attempting to memorize. And I would change the way that I thought that way. Um, once I changed the way that I thought, I noticed that my emotions were changing. And so when my emotions would change, that's when my action would change too. Um, it was really just, a re- I learned it as replacement. I would replace my thoughts, I would replace my emotions, and then I would replace my actions. And that was the way that I stopped um, over drinking. Because heroin, when I stopped using heroin, those withdrawals, I thought I was going to die. Like, I literally thought I was going to die. Running nose, feeling cold but sweating at the same time. Like, I thought I was dying. With alcohol, I almost died. Literally almost died. The epileptic seizures hit. Uh, I remember waking up in the hospital one day, and I had defecated myself. And that was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, was uh, having to buzz in a nurse and let them know that uh, I just did number two all over me. Um, And understanding, like that I was in those type of negative places and got to be able to come out of them, uh, alcohol really was the one that made me and forced me to change my thoughts the most. So instead of going out and drinking, I would do 10 squats. I would do 10 push-ups. I would change my physical state because I found out that changing my physical state was also very helpful to changing my mental state. So it was kind of like a ping pong effect. The thought would come into my brain. I would capture it and I would replace it with something that I wanted to think about, not something that just popped in my head. That would change my emotion and my emotion would change my action. And then the action that I had would make me feel better and make me think better. So that's where it kind of went back and forth. Uh, the way I think it now. It's, this, is, this is awesome because it's really practical. It's really practical. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of um, Tony Robbins. And so if you've ever listened to Tony Robbins, he calls it a pattern interrupt is basically what you identified. And, and you, you did it exactly as he describes, you know, you, it, but it sounds like the words you're using, it wasn't from him, but it's very similar. And he, you know, first is the awareness. So you had to be aware of what was happening. And then once you were able to do that, to catch yourself and not go there, and then he, he even talks about, as you did, you do some sort of physical, what he calls pattern interrupt, where you get up, move your body, or do something. So, man, um, I'm, anyone listening, if they can follow your example, um, it's, it's, it's the way to do it. Did, is this um, highlighted in your book? I'm sorry, I wasn't able to read your book. Oh, no worries. Uh, the book is actually geared towards the... Uh, Pre uh, pre stopping stage. Okay. Um, yeah. So for the book, it goes over my thoughts before I even made the decision to quit. 
when I made the decision to quit, I started implementing the, the steps that I kind of just gave you there. Yeah. But the book goes right. over uh, the five things that I think need, people need to know before they get sober, which is one, it's a choice. Right? Whether you want to call it a disease, um, you get the choice to face your disease, right? If you want to call it a moral uh, issue, then you get the choice to change your moral issue. So it's a choice. Um, the second thing is that it's super uncomfortable. Um, it's very uncomfortable to make that choice and then go through the withdrawals, physical, go through the mental transformation, um, and then even just the social transformation is uncomfortable as well because you have to change your environment too. Um, yeah. You know, I wasn't hanging out at bars anymore when I was drinking. I wasn't hanging out at dope houses anymore when I was using. I was like, what the heck do people do that? Well, I, <laughs> I got no idea what people do that don't use drugs so having to change that environment was super uncomfortable uh the third thing is you're going to get to know yourself and you get to know who you actually are your own thoughts because one of the things that i learned while using was that uh, i spent a lot of time with myself so if i wasn't happy with who i was that was on me and i was the only worst person i was going to be hanging out with myself so i better become happy with who i am um the fourth thing is you're going to be vulnerable during that transition. Uh, Dr. Nelson, there's so many situations that I was just, I, I overthought it. I overanalyzed it, um, tried to adapt in ways that I couldn't really adapt to just so I could overcome. Uh, and that was the vulnerable part, having to tell, like, I'm a single man, right? I don't have any kids. Um, so even when I first stopped drinking, it was vulnerable to, not go out to drinks on a first date. Like, I was like, what the heck do people do here? Um, like, how do you date without alcohol? Um, so you're vulnerable during that. It's vulnerable having the conversations with your family, your close friends, like, hey, I'm changing the way that I'm acting. Um, I don't participate in those behaviors anymore. Uh, you have to be vulnerable with your conversations. You have to be vulnerable with even your doctor. Um, if you're going to the doctor, you have to be vulnerable there. Um, well, and I and one of your points is that um, you had two hip replacement, and it sounds as though um, your doctor didn't know your background; it didn't know that you were you were in recovery, so you were given prescription opioids. Was that did I read that right? You read that right, yes, sir. Yeah. Um, that was my consequences uh, for my decisions because every decision. And so, did you not share that with your doc, or did he know and then just did it anyway? No, I did not. I'm. I intentionally did not share that with the doctor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because I, we've had I've had patients who are in recovery, and they would say, you know, hey, you know, they'd have a meeting and they'd meet with the anesthesiologist, and um, and they still one of them still gave them fentanyl. You know, even though he said, don't give me any opiates, I'm you know an addict and I'm in recovery, and they gave it to him anyway. So it's it's pretty bizarre. So good on you. Yeah. Did you did you a question? Did you actually get a prescription and did you fill it or do you never fill it? Oh, I actually took it and I filled it. Um, I had bilateral anterior anthroplasty. Uh, both hips were replaced within sixty days. Okay. Um, so I did get the prescription. I did fill it. Um, but what I did is I had. Uh, my close circle, I let them know, hey, this is how I'm going to approach this surgery. Uh, 
So I used the opiates for the first uh, week, two weeks, and then I cut myself off. Okay. Uh, shorter than the prescribed time frame. And I okay. had somebody who would keep account of the amount of pills that I had. Uh, who okay. I had somebody over watching me, basically. Um, yeah. I trusted friend just because you have to – one thing that I found in my personal journey um, out of recovery was that you need two things. And how you choose to get them is completely up to you. So this is kind of, you know, this can be used for any one of the audience groups, whether it's a parent, a loved one, or it's the person themselves in recovery who wants to maintain recovery. I found that you need accountability and you need community. Those are the two things that, regardless of what stage you're at, are going to be the most helpful. Yeah. Um, and so having accountability with somebody who I, I, Again, I don't like being told what to do. So somebody to hand my pills over to and be like, here, count them, double check, because I'm not going down that path again. But I'm also not going to uh, make myself live in more pain right now than I need to, because that's yeah. going to be helpful. Um, and yeah. then from the, Dr. Nelson, I transferred over to uh, cannabinoids, And I used cannabinoids, uh for a few weeks after that. And then I removed cannabinoids from my life as well. Uh, using okay. the same process, thoughts control my emotions and my emotions control my actions. Uh, the way that I teach it is, you know what? Here, sip some tea. T-E-A. Thoughts, emotions, action. What kind of tea are you going to drink today? Is it going to be bitter or is it going to be sweet? And I get to make that decision. Um, and so that's really the framework that I, that I went with. Um, yeah. And yeah, I got both hips replaced. I was two years ago. Um, and I stopped doing some of my advocacy work during that time frame just because I didn't feel it was uh, right, you know, morally right to be telling people, hey, don't do drugs when I'm sitting there taking, you know, cannabinoids and opiates. But I also yeah. knew for myself that it wasn't, I would have uh, trying to been too much of a macho if I had just tried to muscle my way through those two things, which in the long run would have bit me in the behind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are my consequences. I got diagnosed with avascular necrosis when I was 28 years old. Um, and you know, here's another practical tip for the listeners. There's gotta be a why that's really important. Um, I got diagnosed and they said that I was at stage four and when I was 28 years old, um, that was wow. 2018. Yeah. What is a, was there a, was there injury? Was that from wrestling? What, do you know what that, what that, ha what happened? Well, they said that it's uh, from the amount of times that I slept slumped over. Um, so if huh. you imagine, you know, sitting down, using, smoking, I'd nod off, head hunched over, back hunched over on my knees. Huh. When I was drinking, same kind of concept, I'd hunch over, passed out on the couch or somewhere. The doctor says that the blood vessels around my hip bones got cut off. And because there was no more blood going to my hip bone, they essentially... Uh, decayed and dried up huh. because huh. there wasn't any um, blood to the cartilage. They ended up becoming like cinder blocks. So for, uh, if you can imagine yeah. putting a cinder block to a basketball hoop, that's how I was kind of walking around. I didn't have yeah. any mobility uh, doing high knees, sitting down to sit, hurt, using the restroom. I couldn't lift my knee. Just, it, it was horrible. Um, yeah. At 28. Shower, at 28 years old. Yeah. And did you and, have the uh, surgery? When? Do, how old were you when you had the surgery? 31 when I had the surgery. 
Wow. And so, so you're you're 33, you're 33, 34? Yes, sir. 33, I'll be 34. And if uh, God lets me see it to next year, then yeah, I'll be 34. Um, okay. He's blessed me with 33 years. And the only reason why I got a hip, both my hips replaced, because again, I'm stubborn. And I was just like, I'll just fight through the pain. And at the time when I had the uh, collapsed hips, basically, I wasn't taking any type of uh, opioids. It was uh, self-punishment type mentality. Uh, that I was kind of going through, like, hey, these are your choices. This is what you got to live with. But my younger sister, uh, she started letting me hang out with her again. Uh, she got married. She let me stand in her wedding. And so that was really important to me. And uh, she told me that she was pregnant. Uh, she was going to have a kid. And I was like, oh, what? Hold on. I got to be a cool uncle, right? I had some cool uncles around me growing up. I got to be a cool uncle. I got to be able to take you know, my niece or nephew to the, to the park. I got to be able to play with them. I got to be able to go swimming with them. I want them to have great memories of me. And that's when I decided to get my hips replaced was because I'm not going to be uh, limping around uh, yeah. with my niece or nephew. Yeah. It turns out to be my niece. And she's uh, two years old and we have a blast. I get to play with her, pick her up. And that was my, that was my big why was because I wasn't going to be, she wasn't going to see that portion of me. Yeah. Yeah. Kids will, kids will melt your heart. Don't they? Yeah. 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 And and how is it, how is it when you walk into the room and you see her response when you walk in, how how does that feel? Oh, it feels amazing. <laughs> uh, getting a little bit choked up now, even thinking about it because she I know. calls me Theo and she points and she 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 smiles and she wants to play and she wants to show me yeah. what she's doing and I'm just like, holy cow! I'm gonna yeah, be that's amazing, little human. Yeah, that's amazing. That's one of life's gifts. Is like, you know, um, my little my little grandson. So we spoke of my my daughter that's uh, nine years sober and her son's eight. And um, I'll tell you, um, she, right after giving birth, she had to go to prison for some of their behavior that she did while, while um, using. And so uh, one month after gave birth, um, this little man came into our family. And I tell you, it, at first, I was like, my, my youngest child um, just moved out. So for I don't know, at the time, probably 20, 25 years, I was always taking care of a child and, you know, taking him to events and school and getting them ready and taking them to lessons and doing all that. And I had just felt like selfishly, I felt like, you know, this is my time. I've had devoted so much of my life to my kids and now it's my time. So I wasn't all in with, uh, the, our grandson and I, I, I told my wife, I said, I, I'll love him obviously, but I don't want to be the person on call for, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday you have them and you watch them and you're responsible. I said, I'll do it when it's on my time. And when, and it wasn't more, Nico, it wasn't more than a week where you just, God makes these kids so darn cute that we can't help but just want to be around them. And so I'd walk in and he'd smile and had this big goofy grin. And my wife, God bless her. I said, Hey, I've been thinking about it. And, you know, I think I'd really like to take Oliver, you know, she said, Oh no, 
no, no, no. You made your choice. <laughs> she goes, you don't get to, you don't get the benefit of being, in, you know, with him. You can play with him, but no, you, you chose, chose that. And I was just like, oh, that was dumb. <laughs> but I, in regard to him and his, these, I was talking to one of my buddies and I said, you know, when you're, when they're your kids and you're so busy and you don't have as much time or perspective, you can't really fully appreciate it. But when it's the second time around, you know, 20 years after my other children, when I raised them, um, I, I say, if you look at life through the eyes of that child, most people on any given day, if they go through their day and they review their day, if they have one or two things in their day that was a, you know, seven, eight, maybe on a great day a nine and once in a few years you have a, a 10. And what I'm referring to is a, an ex, a life experience, something that really moves you or you're really excited about. You know, most people, they're in the fives and six, you know, they're going through life. Like uh, I think Emerson said, most people are going through lives of quiet desperation. But uh, with that little man, I told my buddy, I'm like, he goes, how is it with the, the, your grandson? I said, it's amazing because I'm walking around with him. Everything's a nine. He's so excited about seeing a bird. He's so excited about seeing a flower. He sees a dog and he goes 10 plus, you know, and, just, yeah. and I was like, wow, that reminds you how wonderful and beautiful life is. And just to have that little guy remind me of that and so that i'm kind of when you're describing your uh, niece it's kind of making me smile and just thinking back to when my children were that age and when my grandson was that age and so it's it's so precious so good on you that you recognize that and you're you're getting to experience that love and that that joie de vie that you know through the eyes of the child it's beautiful yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's a wonderful experience and it comes full circle, right? I think that when you make uh, decisions that are that have consequences that are, because it's still a consequence, right? Like consequences don't have to be bad. It's just the outcome of the decision that you're making. And now my consequence for staying uh, on this path, staying positive, helping others, is I get free time to go and hang out with her. On Wednesday, yeah. she knows that I'm going to see her. She knows that we're going to go to the park. She no, those are the consequences that I now get to deal with, and they're beautiful consequences, honestly. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's a choice. And if I choose to go down to the liquor store today, and if I choose to go hit up the guy that I know sells fentanyl today, then you know what? There's going to be consequences that come along with that, and it's not seeing her, not seeing my family. And for me, that's yeah, that's too large of a consequence to take. Yeah. So, Nico, uh, it's hard to believe, but we're coming up towards the end of the podcast. And um, so we got just a few minutes, and um, I want to um, have you give your contact information, anybody out there listening, and how they get get in touch with you. And I know you do coaching, you you do public speaking for business, and you – so if – and if you could describe – those types of things, how people get in touch with you, and then maybe give a last word of if you were out there listening and you could give one last word to anybody out there, what would that be? Yeah, awesome, for sure. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share with your platform um, my stuff. Uh, I believe that nobody's supposed to be created as a perfect little angel, so my organization is called No Halo. 
Um, and you can find me at nohalonm.com. That's the website. Okay. Um, on all social medias, uh, it's YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, it's no halo nm. Um, I do have a TikTok, and that one was started uh, using my name. So that one's Nico and then Morales. Or I'm sorry, Nico underscore underscore Morales. So those are platforms that you can find uh, some of the free content that I push out uh, because I love to encourage people and ways that they can change. Uh, my organization, we do professional development um, and personal development uh, focused on communication and leadership skills. And then, yes, I coach individuals to their definition of sobriety. Uh, you can reach me through any one of the platforms or through the website. There's some uh, ways to set up free consultation calls, um, and you can see if we're a good fit. Uh, the last word that I would give somebody you know what, is that you need to do better today in some way than you did yesterday. And it doesn't have to be a major shift. It doesn't have to be a major change. It really just needs to be a small area that you know that you can do better in today because confidence is built from completing things you're not sure that you can complete and stacking those on top of each other. So that's what Beautiful. that's one last word that I would share with somebody. Beautiful. Awesome. So um once again, our guest today, Nico Morales, and uh, the website is nohalonm.com. And uh, Nico, thanks so much for um, sharing your story. I'm sure you helped a lot of people out there. Your advice is sage and practical, and um, anyone out there, I think you could do well to reach out to Nico. I think he could really help. So my name is Dr. William Nelson. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I didn't get a chance to even speak with her, but thanks to Robin, my wonderful producer, and uh, thanks so much, and we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Your Road to Personal Addiction Recovery with Dr. William Nelson. Listen live each week at this time or anytime 24-7 on demand at StarWorldWideNetworks.com.